RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Daniel, your doctor host, and today we have a special guest on our show. His name is Babak Begum, and he is an emergency medicine physician who has an amazing Instagram page that we both love to follow, and he's a big supporter of our podcast, um, and he's a big supporter of doctor and nurses relationships. So we're lucky to have him on today with us um, and welcome him to our show. First of all, thank you so much for coming on. I know that you just got a new job and I really appreciate you like taking the time to do this. So um, like it's awesome to have you and um, thanks for being such a strong like RNMD podcast advocate. Like that's awesome. Thank you, man. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't you give us a little background about yourself first? My name is Bobak. Uh, my last name is Begum. My handle is Bob underscore back because uh, most people can't say my my name usually, uh, including my American cousins. Uh, <laughs> so I used to be called like Bobby my whole life, but then I trained with a guy named Bobby. So I've gone by my real name ever since then. But I'm a new attending. I am an emergency medicine doctor, uh, an ER doctor. Um, I trained in Jersey and now I work in Ohio um, and uh, I'm loving it. And uh, yeah, I think my my experiences with or my passion for like this RNMD relationship comes from my experiences with nurses in the past, especially during residency. And I feel like uh, especially looking through all of your posts and all your stories and all the comments that we get, there's a lot of misconception on both sides between physicians and nurses. And it's really interesting to see what everybody struggles with and some of the misconceptions. And I think it is really important to talk about it. Um, So that's, that's why I love this podcast idea and all these topics. Ah, Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny when you really start to break it down, like what people get upset about. First of all, most people, it's the same things over and over again. And like, there's like people from, um, like Hawaii and Alaska and stuff. And they post the same problems that I have in New York. And I think that's so funny. Um, and then also it's just interesting too, to see just like the basic misunderstanding of each other's jobs. <laughs> totally. Couldn't agree more. I definitely am excited to hear f- from your perspective as an EM resident and attending. Cause me being from an internal medicine background, is a different perspective. I kind of interested to see your interactions with nurses on the uh, ER. Yeah, so so I I will say before uh, we get into it, like so being an ER doctor and even as an ER resident, I think it's easier to interact with the nurses, um, especially when they have concerns because in the ER everybody works in like the same space. Like my desk is 
a foot, you know, two feet away from the nurse's station. And so if a nurse needs me to come see a patient because they're concerned about something, or if they need me to talk to a patient again because they're discharged because they want like clarification or they ask, they like request to speak to the doctor, it is very easy for a resident or an ER attending just to stand up and walk 10 feet into the room and like kind of remedy the situation versus as a medicine resident, especially at nights, you guys are on like one wing of the hospital and who knows where the nurse is calling from. And you might be doing other things like taking care of admissions or consults, putting in your orders. It is a little bit more challenging to just like get up and physically go lay eyes on the patient. And that's why I think for ER doctors and ER residents, it's a little bit easier because of just the natural workspace that makes things easier and was a very different experience than when I was a resident and was taking calls on the floor from like ICU ICU nurses or like from a trauma nurse or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's similar to how it is for me too. Like now that I'm in the ICU, it's so much different because I have somebody right there in front of me and I can say like, Hey, I have a problem. And they just like stand right up and come into the room with me versus on the floor. It was like a nightmare. Like sometimes you don't know where the doctor is. You don't know if they're getting your pages. Maybe there's something wrong with the machine or maybe you're being ignored or maybe they're in turnover or, you know, it's just like, it's like it, it creates so much extra stress that doesn't need to be there. Totally. And I will say the months that I was a, I guess I'll, I'll use the example of trauma because it's, I think it's more indicative of like what generally the night residents or the skeleton crew on night goes through. Um, Cause when I was on ICU, we had 36 ICU beds and there was a fellow and me and not all 36 of those patients needed something at once. And I was just responsible for the ICU, not like, you know, 80 patients on the floor. But just to give you an idea, I did two months of trauma. And during trauma, one, one rotation, I was on nights by myself. Like there were surgical residents, but they were there doing their own thing. And the other month I was with one other person, thank God. And on trauma, you are in a trauma bay, you go to all trauma codes, you go to all trauma alerts, you take care of all ER consults. So any person who falls, like an old person who falls and breaks their hip, yes, ortho is going to get called, but that person is coming to the trauma service. So you can just imagine how many consults come through the ER. And then on top of that, there's like anywhere from 80 to 100 patients on the trauma list that normally get taken care of by like six NPs during the day who know those patients, who rounded on those patients, who get calls from the nurses. They're very knowledgeable about everybody there and they handle whatever they needed, whether it's a bowel regimen or to talk to a family or to order some imaging or follow up on something. And so when you're doing all of those other things and at night getting anywhere from five to 10 calls an hour, it can be really overwhelming. Um, and you have to learn to prioritize based on the acuity of the patient. And I think that's where a lot of frustration comes from um, because obviously like the patient has their own concerns, the nurse is concerned, you never want to ignore them. And that's why I think it's so important when you are the resident um, to what I learned and what helped me was if it was something simple, like they needed pain medicine, or if they needed a bowel regimen or something like that, I would just put it in. Or if the blood pressure is creeping up, I would put it in. Um, but if it was something where you were truly really busy in an emergency downstairs, 
saying something as simple as, hey, I'm really busy right now taking care of a critically ill patient. I do not want to ignore you. I understand your concern. Can you please call me back in 10 or 15 minutes if that's okay? And they would be so happy. They'd say, sure. They would feel acknowledged. They would call me back. And if it was a true emergency on their end, they'd be like, hey, doc, no, not really. Like this guy's pressure is 250 and he's complaining of crushing chest pain. And then you'd, you'd figure out how to deal with it. Right. Yeah. You know, versus an angry resident who's just like, I'm too busy and blows the nurse off. That's just like not the attitude to have. And I think that some residents do that, unfortunately, and or they're just overwhelmed and it comes off as being super like abrasive. And that's just not the way to go about it. So to everybody listening, I would encourage you to employ some kind of strategy like that because it makes things run so much smoother. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, the times when I've had doctors do that to me and say like, hey, we're in the middle. An example is I had a patient that I needed something. It was it was non-emergent, but it was something that the patient was kind of like hyper focused on and really, you know, had a lot of anxiety and was asking me over and over and over again. So then what do I do? I have to ask the doctor over and over and over again to say like, oh, I just paged again. I just contact, you know, I'm just waiting, you know, like that kind of thing to like reassure the patient. And um, it was two, it was a resident and an intern that were covering and they, we have like an internal text message system and they just like sent me a text back like, hey, we're in an emergency, like as soon as we're done, um, you know, I'll follow up. Cool. Because like my thing wasn't an emergency and it was actually more of the patient, you know, being kind of like having, having anxiety about this. So then I was able to tell the patient like, look, doctor's in an emergency right now. Like the patient can't really argue with that because they know their thing is not an emergency. So, hey, doctor's in an emergency downstairs. As soon as they come back up, look, we're going to handle this. And then that that's the answer. You know, now I have an answer. But if I don't have an answer, if I have nothing to convey to the patient, then it's just this, what do I say? Every time I walk in the room, did you hear back? Did you, you know, and it, it actually takes more of my time. Like, I don't want to deal with that either, you know. Totally. I've, I mean, I've, I've seen it in the ER where they're just like on the call bell and they want something and they feel like they're being ignored and there's, and you're stuck in between this patient and the physician who really needs to either put in an order or go talk to the patient. And then you end up being the middleman and just kind of wasting my own time. <laughs> I can't imagine how frustrating it is for four nurses when that happens. Honestly, I just think the residents, it's good to let them know, Hey, I'm in an emergency. I will call back. Um, and that, that usually helps a lot. Another thing I thought that was helpful that me and the residents that I was on trauma with was we kept like a list and we would write down like, hey, room number 827 called about this. This nurse called about this. So like when we were doing an admission or we were doing a consult, we had a list of like, OK, we need to when we get a moment, call these rooms back to try and like, you know, if we can fix all of these things that, that were concerns at night. So uh, not everybody does it like that. I don't know if they do it like that, Dan, like, I don't know if you just prioritize in your head or, or go from like highest acuity, but like, I, th I think that's a good, good way of doing it. I've seen a few programs that I visited do that. They kind of have like watchers and stuff like that or like based on acuity, but we don't do it that way. It's more like we keep it in our head. Have you done rotations on the IM floor? Yeah. When I was an intern, we did a month of night float, um, which is basically medicine. Um, and that was good because we had to do, we didn't do any consults, but we did admissions. So we went through the ER and did the admissions that we were assigned. And it, it all came in as a list. 
Um, but then we would get calls on the floor too. So it was very much like, I mean, my senior was a medicine resident. It was a PGY two or three medicine resident. Um, and so we would be putting in medicine orders. And then if somebody had like an issue on the floor, we would go see them. So I, I think it was like being a medicine resident. And it was good because I got to meet all the hospitalists. Was there a particular time during those night floats where you were kind of like frustrated or felt like there was like nursing interactions that uh, really came to your mind? Yes, totally. Because my perception of how to handle it as an intern was very different than as a third year with three years like under my belt. I think like like if I was in the middle of doing like a complex admission because I was just an intern uh, and I didn't know the medicine as well. And this person has like 20 things going on and I'm getting calls about like a patient being nauseous or like one of the one of the pet peeves that I had was like getting calls on like the blood pressure is over 200, but the patient is sleeping or they have no symptoms. You know, it would it would like frustrate me. And I would think like, well, why is this person calling me about like a blood pressure if the patient is 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 sleeping? And when you learn about the, the nurse's roles, mm -hmm. a lot of places, the nurses are supposed to call when the blood pressure is over 200. Yeah, we have a responsibility. Right. They're supposed to call if the heart rate is exactly. over 100. You know, it doesn't, the nurse knows the patient isn't septic. The patient's just anxious or something else is going on. Heart rate's over 100. They're just conveying information exactly. to you as part of their job. And you can't get frustrated as a resident and, uh, you know, be short with the nurse. But I could see why some doctors, when they're overwhelmed, and this isn't a justification for their behavior, you know, when they're overwhelmed or they're new or they're learning the medicine, or if they're not a medicine resident like I wasn't, I could see how they would maybe be short with the nurse or be like, you know, why do you want me to put in a bowel regimen or why do you want me to give a medicine to this patient whose blood pressure is probably over 200 all the time? Um you know, I could see why that would happen. The other thing that I tried to do, because I, I did, and this happens in the ER all the time, we get patients from like urgent care or doctor's offices who come in with like asymptomatic hypertension. And I get calls from that from the, on the, from the floor when I was a resident. And I would explain to the nurse like, hey, you know, I don't want to tr treat this asymptomatic hypertension. This person probably lives at this high of a blood pressure. And I think I could probably make them symptomatic if I acutely lower their blood pressure by just throwing medicine and trying to get the number down to make us all feel better. And when I explain my thought process, and you could apply that to any kind of call, that one, the nurse always appreciated it. It was like a discussion. It would put them at ease. And then, you know, they would just say, hey, you know, the physician is aware. Uh, they're aware of the blood pressure. We're, we've elected not to treat it at this time. And they could write it in their notes. So it would cover cover them like based on their hospital protocol. And I, I feel like it would just, uh, I don't know, kind of remedy the situation and make the nurse happy as well. You know, and I think that's the approach that everybody should take towards these kind of issues and nursing calls. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. I think conveying what your thought process is, is the key, I feel. I do feel sometimes that I, I talk to Abby about this all the time. Some nurses don't want to know. Like, for example, I'll go to a nurse. I'll be like, by the way, you know, I want to change this antibiotic to this antibiotic because, you know, the blood culture was this or whatever. They're like, you can tell they don't care about why you're changing it. They just want to know, OK, what is it? And I'll do it, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, in my limited experience, yeah. But I, I, I mean, maybe, Abby, you could weigh in on this, but I felt that you know, most of the time, if you explain the thought process to the nurse, they were 
uh, you know, usually very appreciative, especially if they weren't like super busy or didn't have a million things they had to do too. And you're just kind of having mm-hmm. a discussion about management. I don't know. I always felt like the nurses appreciated it. Definitely. I, I think it, I mean, a nurse, just like a doctor, isn't one person with one uh, opinion or one goal, right? So like we're different. So, I mean, you're definitely going to have different interactions with different people. And there are, of course, especially some of the older nurses who, you know, they have two years to retire and they've been doing this a long time and maybe their spirit is a little broken with nursing, which is common in our field. Um yeah, they're a little more task oriented sometimes. And I kind of don't blame them. I mean, if I was in this for 30 years, I mean, maybe I'd feel that way too. Um, but I think there are definitely a lot of nurses that are curious and are interested in like what's going on. And, um, a lot of nurses in general, the feedback that I get from the nurses is we don't feel included in the plan. Um, people don't communicate properly. So if you do that, it's just, first of all, it's better for your team, right? Because now the person who's directly taking care of your patient knows what's going on which is just good right and then also the person feels acknowledged that they're a healthcare professional you know and they're not just like a minion to like take orders and just do x you know a plus b equals c which is really and this isn't a doctor you know this this is no one's fault but the hospital system in general has made us all feel i think and doctors have told me this too that we're just expected to kind of act like robots and just kind of do the plan and procedure the way that they've laid it out for us. Um, so it can feel really nice when somebody acknowledges that like I have a brain and I have my own judgment and, you know, um, I could learn something and I could even use that to teach my own patients. You know, it's, it's kind of nice. There was a question that I got that I thought was a really good one that maybe we could talk about just, uh, for a sec. It was from a new nurse. He was like, you know, he, I think he his experience was less than a year. I think he was on med surge and he said, what tips do you have for calling a physician, particularly at night? Because he worked at night um, and he said, you know, I am, he I mean, he said it flat out. He was like, I am concerned and sometimes scared to call the physician in the middle of the night because I feel like maybe I'm not conveying what I need to convey to them. And I am concerned about the backlash that I may get on the other end, depending on who the consultant is. And I can totally understand that as an ER doc, we call everybody all the time in the middle of the night and daytime in the morning, everyone we call and not all the consultants are nice, you know, not, not all of them are, uh, you know, it's not all roses. I mean, you're essentially (laughs) making work for other people. So, um, I thought that was a, Every trope, right? What's Every single that? trope. You got to call the cardio. <laughs> Every yeah. baby troponin, right? The cardiology yeah. team. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we. we I have a saying, and we had a lecture about this. There's only two reasons to call a consult. One is you have a question, and two, you have the consultant needs to do something for you. So I think if you keep that in mind, that's usually pretty good. But not to go off on that, um, I thought the question was really good um, by this nurse. From my experience, when I get calls from the nurses, when I'm like, okay, this person clearly knows what they're talking about. It's when the nurse is like super thorough and they don't have to use the mnemonic Mm -hmm. or whatever they tell you to use. It's like the nurse literally calls and is like, hey, I have this patient in room this. Their blood pressure is this, but here's some collateral. Their blood pressure has been running 150 the whole time. And now it's 200. I still gave them the medicine they were supposed to get at night. 
and now they're symptomatic. They're complaining of like a crushing headache or now they're altered. Like the nurse is on it. If I hear something like that, I immediately mm-hmm. know this is actionable, you know, it's it versus and it's a very different call. And I've gotten both kinds of calls where it's like, oh, the patient is I don't know. The patient was complaining of stomach pain. What do you want to do about it? And I'm like, oh, OK, well, where is their pain? And they're like, well, they're sleeping now and they're not having any pain. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's different. I mean, I'm using that as like a made up example, but like you can see the difference between those two calls of like how mm-hmm. thorough the first call is um, and how much collateral information there is versus just like, hey, here's a piece of information, you know. So I think I think that helps a lot. And some nurses might not know all the collateral. The patient might be completely new to them. And in that case, I think you have to just say, hey, I'm concerned about this patient. Any doctor who hears that from a nurse should know like, hey, I either need to go dig through the chart myself or go see this patient because this is like something that's concerning to this person. I mean, I was told that as a resident, if you just tell the consultants, hey, I have concern about your patient, most reasonable people would would understand that and try to help out. They should. I started um, in nursing, you know, a, a little while ago, and um, I was in. I I've been like a CNA. I was like I've been in healthcare basically my whole career. Like as long as I've been able to work, this is what I've been doing. And yeah, I was I was instructed by when I was a brand new nurse by like old school nurses like. You're going to call the doctor and he's going to scream at you like he's going to like it was like an expectation. They're going to scream. And it was it was it's funny, actually, to phrase it even that way. He's going to scream at you. And that's how it was put it to me, because it's a very old style, old world of medicine, you know, from from these people who trained me's perspective. And it was like, just call them, hold the phone out. This is the advice that I got. Call them, say, this is so-and-so, I'm calling you about this patient. When you hear the person start to scream, take the phone away from your ear, wait until you don't hear it anymore, and put the phone back to your ear, and then just start going into your report and asking. And it's like such a crazy, psychotic way to conduct business, if you think about it, in healthcare for Mm -hmm. a patient. (laughs) Um, But that was the advice that I got in. I think I think what you're saying is definitely true. Like you need to give as much information as possible that's essential to that situation. Like you don't need to go all through your right. S bar. You know that's that's not necessarily you know important. You can say like I, a good example is I've had multiple patients that their blood pressure is really really high, and I have a duty to notify. That's something about nursing. We have a duty to notify the doctor. So if if I see that there's a problem and I didn't take action on it, then they I have liability. So they could come back at me and they might take my job for something like that if there was a poor patient outcome. So I have to notify you and I have to document that I did that. And that's my action that I did. So usually what I'll do because I have to notify is I'll say, hey, patient's blood pressure's this. He's on the phone with his girlfriend. They're having a fight right now. And the doctor would be like, okay, cool, let me know. And I'm like, all right, bye. And we hang up. And it's like, now I can document that I did my job and I'm not bothering you when it's not really important, you know. Totally, <laughs> totally. And, yeah, I've gotten calls like that too. Like, I mean, the nurse, the nurses that have that are very good at it, like, I mean, they tell you everything you need to know. Hey, patient's heart rate is 105. They'll say, I mean, I've had good nurses be like, I don't think they're septic. They were admitted for chest pain. They don't have a fever. Their white count is 11. Mm -hmm. I think it's just reactive. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, are you okay with just watching that? Like they already have a plan. Yeah. You know, do you want me to right, give like right. Tylenol and get cultures and a lactate? Or do you think we could watch them? Like when you get a call like that, you can tell like the person on the other end has really put the pieces together, went and examined the patient, looked through their chart. I mean, uh, you know, done their due diligence. And if you get a call like that from a nurse, I don't see how you can just like not be grateful for, I mean, they've essentially done half of the work for you. You know, you're just kind of like, yeah, I, I've notified, you don't have to go digging through the chart and, and it just makes all parties, uh, yeah. you know, happy. And, and pro tip for the nurses that are listening, do that. If you really are sure, you know, you did your assessment, you looked through the chart, do that so that it's going to make your job easier. If you just call an intern and say, hey, heart rate's this, right? And then now they're ordering blood cultures, they're ordering all this medication. They're, now you have all this work to do that maybe isn't even necessary. It's not even necessary for the patient. And maybe you already got labs on this person. Now you have to go back in, you have to do it again. You're creating work for yourself too. So like check and see, like you have to use your own judgment, you know, and then present that to the doctor. Totally. Totally. Okay. Let's get into it, guys. Let's do it. Okay. I wrote down here. This is how this started. Okay. The conversation that you and I started talking about was it was a surgery resident who wrote in and said that they did not appreciate getting paged overnight when they were covering if the patient could eat or not eat and that the attending should see the patient in the morning and be the one to decide if the diet was going to be advanced or not. Dan, you want to take that? <laughs> all right, guys. Listen, there's a lot about this. There's a, lo there's a lot about this one. I see this all the time, man, all the time. Uh, the diet order's not in. What do we do? You know, is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, from you, pretty much. That's me, yeah. Actually, I'm kind of hungry right now. I can go for a diet order. Um, <laughs> It's annoying. It's annoying. And I think Bobak made a really good point because as an intern, you can see that as a very, uh, for, forgive me for using this word, as, a, as an idiotic thing. You know, it's in the middle of the night. Why, why are you asking me about a diet order? But if you actually think about it, it's the, it's the nurse being proactive. It's the nurse taking preemptive action uh, to make sure that patient is getting what they need. It kind of makes sense, actually, because... You know, there's breakfast coming up early in the morning, um, and if that is not set up for the patient, they're not going to get their breakfast, and the, the whole orders and the systems are going to be messed up if you don't make sure it's done. So if you kind of understand how the hospital works and the way the patients get their care, then you'll be like, all right, yeah, of course I'll put the order in. It's not a big deal. But some other residents might be like, this is ridiculous. I'm not wasting my time for this. The nighttime shouldn't be for this kind of stuff. You know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I could see how the resident would think that too, especially on busier services, you know, and a 36 bed ICU where you have help versus like being the only resident on a trauma service. You know, I could see how some residents could get frustrated. And, um, you know, I think someone posted, they said, you know, the nighttime is a skeleton crew. We're only supposed to put out fires. That's not exactly entirely right. Like, yes, the skeleton crew at night is number one job to put out the fires, but you can't ignore the, I don't know, five to 10 calls you get every hour. Like there has to be, um, a, you have to have the ability to prioritize and to address the other concerns. Um, and I think a good resident, an experienced resident, 
knows how to do that and develops a system how to do that. And if they don't, they don't know how to do it by day one, usually you learn by day three or four. That's how like steep the learning curve was when I was on trauma. I was like, okay, we have, we have to, we can't ignore all of these calls. Yes, we're crazy busy, but we have to do all of this. And, you know, I learned how to make it work. All of my co-residents who rotated through this trauma service learned how to make it work. And then at the end, we felt like we were better doctors because of it. I loved this example because it, it's a small example of something I think we all feel, right? Um, so so it was really good. Um, by and large, the doctors, what I heard from them was like what you just said. We're, we're a skeleton crew. We don't have time. This is um, not our priority. We're dealing with emergencies. Um, and then And then there's the flip side of the nurse who's like, who's dealing with a patient one-on-one and I mean so it can be kind of difficult for the nurse who is first of all a patient who's maybe NPO like this example the the patient went for surgery right so the patient was NPO maybe 24 hours before and then went for surgery and then now it's the day after and they're begging to eat and sometimes they think they feel like we don't care if they eat or not they really feel that they feel like their needs aren't being heard, they're hungry, they get cranky, all they want is, you know, uh, a sandwich or something, they they can smell the food next door, their roommate's eating, and they're like, what the fuck, why aren't you giving me food, you know, and like, it can turn into more than just like a, a, a simple diet order, you know, it can really turn into like, the, the patient feels like it's a personal attack on their freedom, because they're not allowed to eat, you know. <laughs> But they feel like they're being deprived. Like it's like some kind of like sick joke. Like they, these people are withholding food from me where it's literally a click of a button on the computer. Right. You know, I totally understand that and can't imagine the frustration from the patient and the nurse stuck in between being, again, the middleman between this patient who wants to eat and the service that thinks they should be NPO. I will say, and again, ER residents, so we just... You either can eat or you can't eat because you're waiting for a, a CT scan of the belly or you have like two tropes that you need to rule out and are getting admitted. This eating problem is usually not too bad in the ER. Mm-hmm. Or if people are really hungry and they're pissed off at us, <laughs> they just sign out against medical advice yeah. and go eat. So <laughs> it's not like how it is on the floor. But I will say I feel like at least from my experience as a, as a resident and when, when I was like interacting with, with the floor and the surgeons – the surgical services, for the most part, are pretty good about who they want to eat, when they want to eat, and when a diet can be advanced. And I'm not a surgeon. I don't know the intricacies of how different surgeons advance their diets from like solid food or, to, or starting out somebody NPO or clear liquid after this type of surgery. But at where I trained and the people that I knew, I felt like they were very good about, you know, the, the diet issues for that particular example. I don't know about, about what your experience is, Dan, but uh, that was at least how I, I felt. We deal with the same stuff on the floor, except it's like longer term. It's just like people, although it's, it's not the patient's fault. Sometimes some of these services don't even care. They think NPO is nothing, you know, like, yeah, yeah. NPO midnight, you know, but you don't. And then the procedure is not the next day until like 6 PM. So they're basically NPO since the night before and they're complaining, you know, it sucks. 
And sometimes a procedure gets canceled and sometimes a procedure gets canceled and they have to be NPO again the next night. And they're so pissed. They're so pissed about it. And there's new evidence that shows that you don't even need to be NPO for midnight anyway. So like, what are we doing? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> they say that all the time. They say like for procedural sedation, because we sedate people in the ER and they're like, oh, it needs to be like six hours. And the new, I think the ASAP clinical guidelines are like, someone needs to be emergently sedated right. or do, do a procedural sedation where you are giving things like ketamine or propofol or whatever, like just cause they ate does not preclude them or like doesn't stop you from sedating them for this emergency procedure that they need to have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Six hours is what it looked like the standard is to me. So I don't know what we're doing. And like Dan said, we cancel them all the time and then they have to redo it. And they're like, I'm leaving and I'm going to Burger King on the way out. And I'm like, all right, go girl. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, thanks. Now I have one less on my 36 patient list. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the issue on the floor becomes like, do you have time for sleeping? You know? Because, you know, in the ED, there's none of that. You're always on. Anything can happen at any second. You have to be on high alert. But on the floor, some of these residents have the impression that, you know, it's overnight shift. I'm just kind of here f for, like, putting out fires. Maybe I can get some time for sleep, you know? Some places are like that. Our program doesn't have luxury to sleep. I feel like we're so busy over the night. You know, we're doing so many admissions overnight or we're taking care of so many issues overnight that we can never sleep. Residents going in with that mentality during the night shift already causes a problem because they're setting themselves up to be so frustrated by anything that comes up, you know? Definitely. Totally. And, and that... That's one thing that I had to learn as a nurse, too. That was like my misconception because there were people who would do that. They would disappear and they would sleep. So when like, I mean, you, Dan, you kind of brought this to my attention. I didn't even realize that you guys are like downstairs doing consults in the ED. I didn't realize that you're doing admissions like I had no idea. I thought if you're not there, you're sleeping. That's what I assumed. So there's a lot of resentment there from the nursing staff, if that's what we think, you know, we're like, oh, this guy's doing nothing. They're just in the back sleeping, like whatever. And then and then I talked to Dan and he's like, no, I'm sweating and like literally running around the whole night, you know, and I'm just like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's such a great point that you bring up, like that they don't know. I mean, I've I've experienced that. I've talked to nurses. They're like, wait, you guys are like doing admissions or you're like in the trauma bay, like doing this. It's their misconception, I think, is that that we're either in a room, we're putting in orders and fielding calls from the floor nurses, and when that dies down, we're sleeping. And it's not most of the time people are doing admissions and consults. So Dan, just to piggyback off of what you said, because I'm again ER, so we do 10, 12 hour shifts. But when we did trauma and you did overnight or you did you took call essentially you were on for 24 or 28 hours. And that is brutal being awake for that long. Most people do try to take a nap. I never did. And that's not like a pat on the back for me or, or anything like that. I, by nature, prefer working nights. Like I'm not a nocturnist, but in the future, I hope to be a nocturnist. I work much better at night. But as a resident, I was always like, not petrified, but concerned that I would fall asleep and be in some deep sleep and then a trauma would come in or I wouldn't wake up to the pager. So I never slept ever. And that's not like a badge of pride. Like it was just how I was like, I stayed awake because I was concerned that 
uh, you know, I'm going to fall asleep and sleep through a trauma. And I know some people, because they do way more months of inpatient than me, they're comfortable or they know when they can get like a 30 minute cat nap. But I think the attitude of like, okay, I'm going to do everything as quick as I can so I can fall asleep is, is not a good one because you're there to work. And one of the intensivists that I worked with, he always was stressing to us, hey, you guys like should be going around and doing walking rounds on the ICU like we do during the day. You shouldn't be like lounging and sleeping. Like part of being here at night is to be awake, to yes, put out the fires, but to, you know, go around and check up on these patients and see what they're doing. You know, it's not a time to lounge and to sleep. And I think if you go into it with that attitude, you end up having much better interactions with the nurses who do need your help for like, you know, say something like a diet order or, or, or whatever that they need, you know, because you're there with the mentality to work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that's also just like a good um, that's a good tip for doctors too. like if you come around and you you know, I don't want to say rounding. Dan doesn't like this. We can let Dan address it in a second. But what I personally would love is if they had rounding on night shift. Like I would love that because then I could present to you my non-urgent things and then I don't have to page you later because, I mean, like contrary to popular belief, I don't like dropping what I'm doing and going, walking over to the phone or do however your hospital works to page the doctor. Like it's a waste of my time too. I would much rather if he's right there, he or she is right there, just say, Hey, look, um, you know, this is going on whenever you get a chance. Like that's how I like to handle stuff. Um, but Dan was very, we talked about this for a minute and he was very like no rounding on night shift. So I don't know. Go ahead. No, no rounding on night shift. I, I reiterate that. Are you serious, man? <laughs> I'm not coming away. You know what I'm saying? You have 40 patients on your list. We're not going to every patient's room and like rounding on them. I'm not doing that, man. I'm yeah. sorry. Come on. Come on. Yeah, it's too hard <laughs> when you have like 84 <laughs> patients. There's no way, but at all the places that I was, some of them did do. So some of them rounded super like early before the actual rounds. It was kind of like a pre round at four o'clock. They would just like walk by and check up on all the rooms. Mm -hmm. The other way that I saw some like fellows do it when I was on trauma or even at our uh, institution is they would like try to handle all the admissions and consults that came in and then before they tried to go like lay down for 30 minutes or something, they would literally walk around the whole unit and ask the nurses like, hey, what do you need? Hey, what do you need? And let them know like, hey, I'm going to go like either, you know, take care of an admission in the ER or I'm going to go nap for 30 minutes. But obviously call me if it's an emergency. But they would mm -hmm. do a walk by round uh, on not 40 patients, Dan, but like however many that there were in the unit. And that let that let them take care of like the loose ends that the nurses had concern about and put them at ease because they knew if they did all of those things, it was much less likely that they were going to get a call from a nurse and could catch like 30 minutes of a nap. So I actually, you know, think that's a really smart way to do it, even though not everybody does it that way. And it's not feasible to do it that way, depending on the number of patients that you have. That, that's a great idea, honestly, because then instead of going to every room, every single patient, there's what, maybe five nurses on that floor. You can go to those nurses. And generally at night, we're kind of in the same area, you know, so you could go and just even pop to the whole nurse's station and say, like, 
does anybody need anything? And like you're saying, like, if that's a routine, then the nurses will save some of that stuff, you know, cause they know they're, they're going to see you later. Totally. I think, I think definitely what you're saying applies to like a unit, like ICU, CCU, you should do some kind of rounding of some kind when you start your shift. It's, I think it's a totally different ball game. But when you have like an internal medicine list where like 13% of them are osteomyelitis patients and, you know, other ones are like stable, like COPD yeah. patients, you know what I mean? It's a little different. You don't have to really see them, you know, so, sometimes we just like run the list and then we sign out and that's it. And I don't think it, it changes patient care that much. Um, but, and, and the, the more experience you get, the more you know what's important and what's not. But I guess you can't be mad at the nurse then later if the nurse is paging you about what you deem unimportant things if you didn't come and check in with the nurse, right? So you can't have it both ways. Well, I'm actually glad you brought this up because we were talking earlier about how much nurses want to inform us about things that are going on. And that's a big part of their job, you know? Um, there's another issue where they don't inform us when they really should inform us. And that comes up a lot because I'll come, because sometimes I'll be day shift and I'll come in day shift and I look through my patients like vitals and, and their labs and I'm like, what's this? They had a blood sugar of 32. Nobody told us this. Or like they did have a blood pressure of 200, like you said earlier, but nobody told us, you know what I mean? So part of the night job the part of the night shift's job is to kind of also gather information and relay that to day team uh, that kind of conveys the status of the patient. Overnight, we have admissions too. We have, I mean, some of these hospitals in New York City, the med surge nurses, they have seven to eight patients on the regular. I mean, it's insane. Like you're flying around, like just like how you guys it's like a skeleton crew and you have no support and no resources. It's the same for nursing. So like I can see how on both sides it would happen where like you miss stuff or you get frustrated or whatever. Like I get it. Um, and then, so then the real question becomes, why do we have these problems? Is it really, if I'm, if I'm mad at the doctor, is it really the doctor's fault or why don't I have more support? Why do I have eight patients? You know? <laughs> I think a good way to remedy that also is to set parameters like, like, okay, patient has a potassium of 3.2, get an EKG. Oh, there's no EKG changes. Okay. The patient's heart rate is 110. I want to give a dose of metoprolol. And if it doesn't come down below hundred, or if it goes higher than like 110 or the patient becomes symptomatic, please call me back. Like, I feel like giving parameters always helps. It kind of lets the nurse know when they should be calling you back or for what reasons or what the physician deems is like an emergency or, or a reason to know rather than just being like, Oh, yeah, I don't really care about a, a heart rate of one Oh five. Like, please don't call me unless it's an emergency. That's much more vague and also not pleasant versus when you're just like, you know, uh, outlining what you perceive to be uh, an actionable like blood pressure or heart rate or whatever. Um, okay. So this is just like, um, a bunch of things that people wrote in about this topic. Okay. So the residents said, um, nights is a time to, you, you kind of went over this nights is a time to tread water and put out fires. It is not a time to change bowel or diet orders. It's definitely not a time to update families. Um, when we're busy, only emergencies are going to be a priority. Um, 
Okay, take that. That's like half of it. Go ahead. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of like before. I I agree and disagree with the resident. Like, yes, uh, the nighttime is to put out the fires and, and to take care of the emergencies. Um, but you know, if you have downtime and they're calling you about diets or or, you know, addressing a blood pressure or pain, that's another common one, or patients who can't sleep and they just need like a dose of Benadryl or melatonin or something. That is something so easy that takes like literally seconds to take care of. We'll make the nurse happy. We'll make the patient happy. If you're really busy, it prevents you from getting another call. So I don't agree with the, hey, it's only for emergencies and emergencies only. And I, a word that I hear, you know, all the time or anybody, any resident will tell you day team problem. You know, that's kind of code for, Hey, I'm too busy right now. See, Dan's laughing. I'm too busy right now. Like I don't have time for what I perceive to be not an emergency right now, but you know, it's, it's, again, it takes seconds to do those things and it prevents you from being called again when you are in the middle of like doing an admission or putting out a fire. And so I think, uh, you know, when you have time, you should address those things. The talking to families at night, I think is its own nuanced thing. And I don't think it falls into this category because it depends on what the nature of the call is. Sometimes families want an update and they say they haven't talked to anyone in eight days. And you look on the chart. I had this happen when I was on trauma. Someone was like, no one's called me. And I looked on the note and one of the NPs was like called and spoke to so-and-so patients like significant other and like gave a full update. That is a very different conversation. Um, to have than like an end of life discussion in the middle of the night where you are the skeleton crew guy coming into someone who's been in the hospital for three weeks, who uh, is either stable and okay. In that case, like I would prefer not to have a, you know, a discussion with whoever family member, if I don't need to, it's much more appropriate for the person during days who's taking care of them for three weeks to do it versus someone who's critically ill who may decompensate at any moment and whose family really needs to hear from the physician who is on call. And so I think that is not a simple um, yes and no, we call families at night type of answer. It's much more nuanced. I mean, something that I do, and this isn't specific to family calls, this is something, um, and like a newer nurse might not know this. Like I had to kind of learn this um, from the nurses around me. Um, it's not just family calls, even like imaging is a really good example. Like it'll be 9 PM and the patient's like, Oh, I got a chest x-ray yesterday and I never heard the results of it or something like that. And it's like, okay, I, it's not my job. I'm not technically allowed to read imaging and it's, it's not appropriate for me to convey imaging results to that patient unless a doctor's already explained it to them. Right. So right there already, I, I, if the patient wants those results, I have to call the doctor. But if it's, you know, sometimes this is could be at three o'clock in the morning, the patient is just getting up to go to the bathroom and then just remembers all of a sudden. And now I'm going to page a doctor to come down to explain and it's not even their their primary team. So, I mean, what I try to do in those situations is say, um, you know, I, the patient has a right to speak to a doctor, period. If they, they're in the hospital, if they want to speak to a doctor, I always give them that option because I'm their advocate and that's my role. But I 
also as their advocate, it might be better if the attending gives them those results, right? And I tell them that. I convey that. And I actually sort of encourage them to do that. Like I say, oh, you know, there is a doctor here, but this doctor is covering for the, the doctor that you regularly see. The, that doctor that knows your case really well is going to be here in the morning. It might be better to ask that person. And nine out of 10 times, a reasonable patient is going to say, okay, I can wait until that doctor comes in. Yeah, Abby, I totally agree with that. And I think, and I think, I hope most residents do this. And I think they do. There are some things that you have to explain, like imaging studies, like on, on one of these rotations, a family member wanted to know the results of it was a very complex patient and it, their imaging results was, was like not even something like you're talking about an x-ray. It was like an advanced imaging study of the brain and MRI. And this person was in the hospital for two weeks and, uh, or three, I don't know, they were in there, they were in the hospital for such a long time. And I think it's unreasonable to expect like a nurse to explain these MRI results to a patient. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just asking too much of the nurse in my opinion. And if that's the case, you as the doctor should, you know, pull up the imaging, review it yourself and call the patient or the family member or whoever it is, uh, or speak with them directly. So I think the imaging, you may, you bring up a, a really good point. And even like in the ER, there was a lot of times, cause in the ER we'll go and we'll talk to patients when we're discharging them, for instance, or when we're admitting to the hospital and then the nurses will take the paperwork, which usually has their like discharge diagnoses on there, for example, and then some like instructions on like, hey, these are things to do for nausea and vomiting. And a lot of times the patients will be like, well, no, I didn't understand this or this wasn't conveyed to me. And they'll say, I want to talk to the doctor again. And it's very easy to be frustrated and be like, oh, I already went in there. Like, some, you know, I already went in there and talked to this person why do I need to go back again? And that's something that I learned in residency and I changed that I, whenever I heard a patient be like, hey, I want to talk to the doctor about this. I just got up and went in there because the patients made up their mind. The poor nurse is just trying to do their job. And if you're like impeding that, it just literally takes five seconds to go back in there and address their you know, concern. And they're not going to drop it either. They're going to like, they're going to keep. They're not. And one of the, one of the nurses that I worked with before I graduated, he told me that he appreciated that I did that. Shout out to my guy, Ryan. You know, he was like, Hey, you know, it's, it's good that you did this. And he, he mentioned a couple of my co-residents who did that too. And I think it's important to do that. And it's again, easier in the ER, but you know, I think in general residents and physicians should do that. Yeah. Um, and not only is it um, like just a bad position to put the nurse and to read the imaging or to d really discuss it in depth, it's inappropriate. Like it's really out of my scope. You know, um, there are there are definitely like you're talking about discharge planning and, and discharge education. That's within my scope. You know, I can do that. Um, but to really, like you're saying, like, I mean, some kind of like brain imaging. I mean, that this just not I don't know the first thing about it. It's just not something I do. I can read every MRI of any part of the body. I can read the CT. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's a genius. You can read grams yeah. of the brain. <laughs> of course. I can read ultrasounds of, you know. I mean, you're probably a master at ultrasound, but sometimes I get, I get a little bit lost in those images. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but but you don't know pregnancy though. That's the one thing you said, right? Who's yeah, that? we don't deal with pregnant patients that much. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody's kind of in their silos. Like, 
like, yeah, they don't deal with pregnancy or they do with, I mean, in the ER, you kind of see it all. You at least have some kind of an, I mean, I take care of a ton of pregnant patients, you know, or potentially pregnant and peds. We get peds, we get geriatrics. You see everybody in the ER. Okay. Hold on. There's only a few more for the MDs. I don't want to bore you. Hold no, you're on. You're good. I'm not okay. doing shit. Good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is you, man. This is you. Okay. It's all you, Dan. Ready? Um, okay. Overnight. Well, we can address some of this. Overnight, we can have 40 plus patients and we're supervising a junior resident. There's no time to do this. We're a skeleton crew. We're doing admissions and consults. We're getting paged about bowel regimens while we're in traumas. And we're getting here was the most interesting one. We're getting paid around $15 an hour working 90 plus hours a week with no food and breaks. Um, And the nurse gets a break. The nurse is making more money working less hours. Wow, that's a lot. Ooh, that's a tough. Hold on, hold on. That man, that question is so packed, you know, and it's so layered, and it also touch. I mean, I don't know. I would, Dan. I'll let you feel this. I really would prefer not to comment on this. You know why? <laughs> it, it touches on pay, which is a sensitive issue, and, and you can talk about it. I mean, we're residents. We don't get paid shit, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the the residents' question is kind of like. I don't know. He's, it's like a resentful question. Like the nurses make totally. this much money. I'm working what, you know, some nurses I hear work three twelves a week. Okay. They work hard job, but that's 36 hours. And some surgical residents, I know break duty hours, which is like 90 hours a week that they can't report making. It comes out less than minimum wage. So is there some truth to what this resident's saying? Sure. But like, it's always sensitive when you bring up money because you're getting trained. It's not like you're getting nothing for it. It's part of your training. So whoever whoever sent it, I can see, I think you're right. There is definitely some resentment in their tone. Um, are they right? You know, it's not a matter of right or wrong. I think they make some valid points, but some of their points are just like guided by uh, frustration or possibly some burnout, you know? Because, you know, it is a training program, you know, and nurses are working a strenuous job. You're not there to compare yourself to nurses, you know? They have their own profession. They have their own, you know, duty hours and careers and that are separate for you as a resident. You know, you picked your career. You knew what kind of lifestyle you were going to have, um, the hours and the pay and things like that. And with the hopes of eventually maybe having the profession and salary that you like, you know. Um, can um, I give you my controversial opinion about this one? Because I think you guys should be tougher about this. I agree. I agree with the, what this resident said. I think that it's. Um, not fair. I don't care that it's a training program. You guys are doctors, right? If you were med students, it'd be a little different for me, but it is, um, a job. It's not just like a, like you're a intern getting coffee for people, right? People's lives literally hang in the balance. In my opinion, just from seeing so many of these residents cycle through in the years that I've been a nurse, I've seen, it's very easy to, to, um, take advantage if you're a hospital system. It's really easy to take advantage of residents because you're only there for a certain number of years. And like you're saying, you guys just power through, get in, get out, get done, right? So they're able to overwork you, underpay, the benefits aren't good, the, the working conditions aren't good. We're talking about why can't somebody put in a diet order for me? I mean, why don't you guys have more support at night? That's the real question, you know? Um, so we're able as nurses to unionize and we're able to 
um, be kind of a collective group. And we can threaten the hospital system and say, listen, if you don't give us X, Y, Z, we're, we're not going to show up to work. And then what are you going to do? You guys don't have that because you have like um, professional repercussions and you're not there long enough to make a lasting change. So in my very personal opinion. They take advantage of you guys, and I think it's something that definitely needs to be rectified going forward. No, I mean, you're right, but it's not as easy as you think it is. I mean, we're, we're going to just do residency for a few years, and then, you know, we're going to go ahead and do whatever we're doing afterwards, attending or other position of some sort. So it's not as easy to do something like that. You're not going to invest in a union because you're not going to be in the union in a few years. So people tend to invest in unions where they feel like, you know, they're going to be in it for many years, if not a lifetime. So it's not as easy to do things like that. And even if you did create the union, how effective could it be and how many problems are you going to cause in the, in the process? So I think people weigh the uh, you know positives and negatives of doing those kind of things. And a lot of them have realized that it's more negatives than positives to do it. But that's not a, nonetheless to say we've made a lot of changes already throughout the year with with work life kind of things you know? yeah abby there's i mean i i think i think there's a you know truth to what you're saying you know these residents do work a lot things have actually gotten you know so much better compared to before i mean it's like an archaic system but there's now duty hours there's an emphasis on physician wellness you know everybody knows that like the physician suicide rate is three times that of the general public. You read about it on the news. And so it is nice that there's an emphasis on wellness. At my program, we had retreats, you know, at least twice a year and like bonding and made an effort to go out. So um, that is helpful. And I also think, you know, residents, most, I mean, almost all medical students who become residents have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. They've worked so hard to become residents. And you wouldn't want to, I guess, be outspoken against your hospital system for fear of retaliation and retribution. It's much easier to, like you're saying, just put your head down and power through and just like, hey, everybody else did it. Why should I make noise? You know, I, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I just think that's the reality of the situation that most residents feel. They're already grateful to match because it's so competitive already to match, especially depending on what specialty you're in. And, and medical school was this like such long, arduous process where you took all these tests and took step one and step two. And now you're finally here. You're like that much closer to being an attending and what you're going to, I don't know, I guess you know, ruffle some feathers and risk getting kicked out. Cause it has happened. Like, you know, residents have gotten kicked out for a number of reasons. And most of the time, I think if you go back and talk to those residents, they would tell you they wish they didn't do it and just kind of plow through just, just to be completely honest. Okay. So the nurses who responded by and large, they said we're all responsible for patient care, just like that. They overall, they empathize that the resident was busy, but at the end of the day, they have a responsibility, everyone has a responsibility um, to the patient. Many patients don't sleep at night, so it can be easy to think that like things are going to be calmer or die down, but actually um, it's this idea, again, of 24-hour care versus is the day team going to handle it. So we're, we're always taught in nursing that the hospital is a 24-hour business. So if, some, if the patient needs something, we're supposed to be there. And that's 
overall, that's the discrepancy that I'm seeing is like you guys are told the day team generally is managing this patient, but we're not told that at all. We're told that we have a job to do and we actually are reprimanded sometimes if we don't take charge. If we if I went to a day shift nurse and I said, oh, X, Y, Z happened, but that's a day team problem. You know, I mean, the nurse would chew me out and rightfully so, because it's it's really my responsibility to take over some of those things. It sounds kind of like a, you sound like a mob boss when you say that. It's a 24-hour business over here. We don't sleep. We don't sleep with nothing. Come on. We make money while we sleep. Okay. <laughs> Here are some people who wrote in and actually had some really helpful things. I thought this was kind of good. Um, for this example of surgery with this patient, first of all, the doctor, before they even do surgery, should definitely be definitely be explaining, hey, you are not going to be able to eat until possibly the next morning after your surgery. And here's why. And maybe even provide them with like a written handout to kind of reinforce that idea. Um, And then also if they contacted the nurse and told them that preemptively, because just like how Dan said, you know, he doesn't know necessarily how some surgeons advance the diet. We definitely don't know some of that stuff unless you really work with a team regularly. So I mean, that kind of information would be really good because then I could just say, no, doctor says no, not until the morning. It's not safe for you to eat. And then that ends that conversation, even if they ask me a hundred times, you know, there is a problem with this idea of if if you're a nurse and your needs, either you're too scared to call you're too scared to page or you feel like you won't be heard, if you feel like you get blown off constantly there's a problem that arises with that. And that makes some nurses go a little rogue. They might think, why am I even going to call this person? They're not going to do anything for me or um, I'm too scared. And they, they use their own judgment and then they start doing things outside of their scope that they shouldn't be doing. And that I have seen from other, other nurses. I'm going to be honest with you. So if there's effective communication just from the head of it, like, hey, this person is going to be X, Y, Z, or like you said, parameters, that gives the nurse some guidance. But if the nurse is left to their own judgment and they don't feel comfortable calling the provider or they can't get a hold of the provider because that person's sleeping or, you know, is so tied up with a trauma downstairs, then, you know, it, it can lead to bad outcomes. And I've seen that happen. Yeah, I... I think, I mean, I think if ever a nurse is concerned, they should call. What about those little tips, like the whiteboard and all that stuff? What do you guys think about that? You hate it all that huddling. You guys don't huddle with us. I think the whiteboard idea conceptually sounds good, but I think uh, it has a few problems. And I'll tell you one of the main ones. Um, I think the day team is so busy with so many things they have to deal with all day. Um, including big tasks and small tasks and a lot of the formalities that they have to deal with, rounding and, and things like that. And they want to get out of, get off the floor and go home as soon as they can. Um, and the night team kind of has a little bit more downtime to deal with things. You know what I mean? And I think they're kind of doing a disservice to the day team to not kind of address some issues that come up overnight and basically have the day team come and be like, oh shit, I got to deal with all this stuff in addition to what I already have to deal with. So 
I think the night team should, if they have time, you know, take it into their own hands to deal with these things. And, you know, if, if they couldn't get to it, then, then maybe put it on the whiteboard and have it trickle down to the day team. That, that could be something to consider. Maybe a hybrid of the two. You, you know what's funny that you say that? I, it's actually like when we're talking about um, people contacting doctors in the middle of the night about like these like kind of smaller issues. That's me. Like that's me 100%. When I was on the floor, that is me. I am literally, literally going. <laughs> oh, doctor, doctor, the patient wants a new pair of yeah. socks. They thought they think their socks are too, their feet are but, warm. Their feet are too hot. <laughs> no, I literally used to print out the consult notes with a pen and go through every single recommendation and tick off if it had been ordered or not. And if it hadn't, I would message the doctors and say, Hey, did you see that cardiology said this? Like, just so you know, and like, they hated me. Like they hated me, whatever. But, but it's what you're saying, Dan, is that I felt like I, it's not always, but sometimes I did have a little more time than the day team, especially a diet order is a really good example again, because like the, the nurse coming, the incoming nurse, the day shift, they start off and they're flying. Like they're just going like crazy. And if I can just make sure that like, oh, if that patient's going to get breakfast, like they already have a tray. If I can do those little things just to make their day easier, like why wouldn't I do that? Like I'm trying to set them up for success in a way, you know? Wait, so Bobak, um, I actually really think it's cool that you're really into this like doctor and nursing relationship thing. And I think a lot of doctors um, aren't that outspoken about these kind of issues. And I think that's why we started this podcast to kind of raise awareness and open the discussion open the forum for these kind of discussions. Um, what kind of got you into this kind of, um, what, what got you into in being interested in this RNMD issues? Um, so I think it was just like my personal experiences as uh, a resident before I got into med school, I was a volunteer and the people who showed me around the ER were the nurses. So I had a very good relationship with the nurses. Um, and then in med school, I had some some more challenging ones, particularly when I was on surgery and I wasn't aware of the surgical culture. And I thought that things would be better uh, when I became a resident. And uh, being a resident is totally different because now you're in like the provider role or you're the physician and the interactions are different than uh, when you're a medical student. But for me, I trained at a three-year program. My first year, you know, everybody, <clears throat> when you're an intern, they they kind of know the expectations. You're new. Um, most of the nurses were really good about being patient. Uh, and I felt like my, my intern experience for the most part was, was pretty smooth. But then, uh, when I was a second year where I had more autonomy and I was just more busy, uh, I struggled a little bit with like, uh, one, just taking care of everything that I needed to take care of early on as a second year, as far as like my speed, the patient volume, the autonomy, and then like my interactions with the, some of the nurses and 95% of the time it was fine, but there was some times where the nurse needed something from me. And because I was kind of busy or still kind of learning the medicine, I may have been a little bit short with them or didn't know how to handle like, Hey, I'm, I have somebody who's critically ill for with X, Y, or Z 
you're coming to me with a Zofran order in my mind, you know, you're like, Hey, I need the Zofran order. And you're asking me three times. I probably could have handled it better as a resident and the progression from second year of residency to third year of residency, where I got better at the medicine and I fixed my nursing interactions and then interactions that were, you know, that the nurses had with me, it just made my life that much smoother as a resident. My patient care got better and my relationship and rapport with the residents got better. And when I was a third year, it was just like, it was so smooth because I knew the nurses trusted me. I trusted them and we had a very good relationship. And I think there is that kind of like a learning curve when you're in residency, but not everybody kind of takes the same path. Some people are, it goes for them very smooth and some people have a more challenging time. And so I think it's important to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've been one of our biggest supporters, which I really appreciate. Um, and that's why we saved this like juicy topic for you. Um, you, you earned it. <laughs> um, no, like, I think that's why this, 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 topic is so good because I want people to listen to this and kind of change, not just change the way they think, but also think more about how they approach like doctor nursing relationships and maybe think about how they can improve, uh, their behavior and how they do things on the floor or in the ED or wherever they work, you know? Um, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on this podcast with us. We, we'd love to have you again. Guys, listen, listening out there, follow Bob back on Instagram uh, he's got a great page. It's at Bob underscore back. It's B-O-B and then it's underscore and then it's back like Bob and then you're back. Dude, you got to come back on sometime for sure. Yeah. No, we'll we'll do it again. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks. Thank you awesome. so much. We really appreciate right, it. Guys. For sure. Thanks for having me Thank on. You. It was a blast. Look Bye. forward to it.